Deuteronomy chapter 26 that we left off with last week. There is a little bit of leftover business that I'd like to address there in Deuteronomy 26. If you will, let's look at the last paragraph. We ended by talking about the first fruits in the first part of the chapter, and then we didn't get to cover the idea of the tithing. That's covered in the chapter 26, verse 12 through 15, but that's covered a little bit elsewhere in the book. But I do want to highlight, if we can, verse 16, Deuteronomy 26, verse 16. We're beginning here. This is really a, a little short summary before we begin the big summary. So a summary before the summary takes place here, and it, this is at the end of the commandments or the statutes per se. All that is left here now are, are admonitions and some left uh, some instructions that he's going to leave them with. But I want to read beginning of verse 16, Deuteronomy 26, verse 16. This day the Lord thy God commandeth thee to do these statutes and ordinances, and thou shalt therefore keep and do them with all thy heart, with all thy soul. A very familiar phrase we've seen. Thou hast uh, about, my, my version says, avouched uh, the Lord this day to be thy God, or confirmed that, and thou, that thou wouldest walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and hearken unto his voice. The Lord has avouched thee this day to be a people for his own possession, as he has promised thee, and that thou should keep all the commandments, and to make thee high above all the nations that he hath made in praise, in name, in honor, and all that thou mayest be a holy people unto the Lord thy God, as he has spoken. So we have a, a little summary here before we get into further instructions. In this section that we're beginning here, chapter 27 through 30, we're going to be looking at the blessings of obedience, the blessings if they hearken and obey, and the curses if they don't. We're looking at good and evil. It's a very common theme throughout the Bible, good versus evil. And as we begin chapter 27, I'm going to... Uh, Refrain from doing the questions. Hopefully you've gone over those. Uh, we're going to try to tie those in a little bit, largely because uh, we need a lot more time on chapter 28. Chapter 28 is a very large chapter. The idea of bless and curse, if you recall from our earlier study, bless, the idea of blessings and curses, or even the word bless or curse, or blessings and curses, and I'll include with that the if-then phrase. We, found, we have found that to be 59 times in the book of Deuteronomy, and we're going to we're embarking on a large section here that includes those words, those phrases. So, chapter 27, divided up into the blessings that are be, to be pronounced on Mount Gerizim and the curses upon Mount Ebal. Let's read beginning of chapter 27, verse 1. Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandment which I command you this day. And it shall be on the day when you shall pass over the Jordan, unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, that thou shalt set thee up great stones, and plaster them with plaster. Thou shalt write upon them all the words of this law, when thou art passed over. 
that thou mayest go in unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of thy fathers, has promised thee. In verse 4, he indicates uh, part of it on Mount Ebal. You will set these stones up on Mount Ebal. And then later on in, in this paragraph, he talks about the, uh, or the next paragraph, rather, Mount Garrison. So as we come to this part of the reading of the text, I want you to imagine, if you will, like the musicians, will talk about a, uh, will use a crescendo in music to, to build the, the heightened emotions and the, the, the feeling of the music is called a crescendo as it builds and builds to a climax. We're going to reach that point in chapter 30 next week when Moses discusses chapter 30 verse 19. He lays out death and life. He says, choose life. That really, I think, is the climax of the book. But before we get there, I want you to be anticipating that and feeling that as the, the narrative goes on. As he gives them instructions here in chapter 27, we're looking at something that is to take place in the very near future. It's going to be just a few weeks away. In Joshua chapter 8, this is fulfilled by Joshua and the people. They get to Mount Ebal and Garrison, and they do exactly what they're being told here to do. So this is in the not-too-distant future, the very near future. Verse uh, 5, There thou shalt build an altar unto the Lord thy God, an altar of stones. Thou shalt lift up no iron tool upon them. You will build the altar of the Lord, the God of unhewn stones, and thou shalt offer burnt offerings there unto the Lord thy God. And thou shalt sacrifice peace offerings, and shalt rejoice before the Lord thy God. And you will write upon the stones all the words of this law very plainly. And I would note there in verse 8 that if you go to Joshua chapter 8, verse 35, I believe it is, it's indicated there that Joshua read unto the people every word of this law before the people. It's indicated there that he didn't leave anything out. Verse 9, Moses and the priests, the Levites, spake unto all Israel, saying, Keep silence and hearken, O Israel, this day thou art become the people of God. So there, verse 11, you're to go to, up to Mount Gerizim to bless the people, those tribes that were assigned to that duty, and the tribes that were assigned to Mount Ebal. In verse 13, they are there for the curse. They are to mention or recite these blessings and curses once they get there. Verse 15, now notice as we look at verse 15 through 26, as we've done the last couple of weeks, we've noted how some of these commandments tie very well into the Ten Commandments. And they could be, if we take the Ten Commandments and expand that thought, some of these ideas are included here. And you'll also notice here, verse 15 through the rest of the chapter, that these are listing only the curses there seems to be an emphasis on the curses here in this chapter. Why do you suppose that would be? Why do we mention just the curses? Let's stop and think about that and consider. Why not mention the good part too? We'll see in the next chapter, and uh, as we look at chapter 28, 
very few verses are taken up considering the blessings. The majority of the verses are highlighting the, the, the curses upon the people. And we'll look at more of that later. But verse 15, Cursed be the man that maketh a graven or molten image, an abomination of the Lord. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Cursed be he that setteth light by his father and mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. All, after all of these curses, they're to say the Amen. Again, verse 16 is another one that is uh, expanded uh, upon of the, one of the Ten Commandments. Verse 17, he that removes his land, landmark of his neighbor. Verse 18, he that maketh the blind to wander. Those that rest or pervert justice. In verse 19, he that lieth with his father's wife. Those that we've talked about, thou shalt not commit adultery. Verse 21, he that lieth with any man, manner of beast, lieth with his sister, daughter, father, he that lieth with his mother-in-law, and so forth. So we're seeing curses here. Before, prior to this, we saw the ratification with blood, and here we see an emphasis upon the curses that are due to these people. As they rehearse these, if you imagine, and we'll look at this in just a moment, the, all of God's people rehearsing the blessings and the curses together. It would further reinforce and impact this, uh, these laws and these words. Let's think about, before we leave chapter 27, I want to go back and look at verse 6 and 7. What's being done here is, I think, an allusion to, it's not actually done here, but it's done in Joshua chapter 8. There are offerings being made. There is a covenant. We've somewhat finished up that covenant in chapter 26. All these words, chapter 26, summarize that. And now we're seeing the instructions on when you get there, I want you to make these offerings, these peace offerings and so forth. And then I want you to recite the words of the law. But let's hold in on verse 7. Thou shalt offer peace offerings and rejoice before the Lord thy God. As we look at a covenant, a covenant is made up of a couple of critical key elements. There's a couple of key elements in a biblical covenant here. I want to look at those with you and consider those as we look here in verse 6 and 7 at the idea of God ratifying a covenant. You ratify, as according to God's instructions, you ratify a covenant with blood. You go back to Genesis 9, the covenant with Noah was ratified with blood. Genesis 12, the covenant with Abraham was ratified with blood. It, not, not in chapter 12. The law of Moses was ratified initially in Exodus 24. And the law of Christ, the new covenant, is ratified in Matthew 26 with blood. All of these covenants are ratified with blood. That's one of the key elements of a covenant. The other is the oath, which we'll get into in chapter 29. These are the two pillars upon which the idea of a covenant would stand, the key elements of a covenant. As we talked about Noah, this, Noah's uh, covenant was ratified with blood as he offered beast upon the altar. Abraham's, uh, we might just expand upon Abraham's to get the idea. Abraham's covenant was mentioned in Genesis 12. His covenant was ratified in Genesis 15 when animals were offered. 
And then the oath was given to Abraham in Genesis 22. And so you see all three of those tied in there together. And we could include the law of Moses and uh, the new covenant as well. These things are good to keep in mind as we look at tonight's lesson, but not only tonight, but as we go forward in the Bible and understand covenants, how they begin, how they're, what the key elements are in a covenant. And uh, we might, if we're not aware of that, we might read a verse like chapter 27, verse 6 and 7, and overlook that, just skip right over it, not realize what's taking place there. Okay, any thoughts on chapter 27 before we move on here? Any thoughts on chapter 27? One other thing I want to show you here is I forgot about this, and uh, that is a picture of Mount Gerizim and Ebal. In the valley below, you see Shechem. Shechem is the first initial notable city that Abraham came to in the land of Canaan. But here you see, uh, as described, this place is a natural amphitheater. The valley was formed by a natural amphitheater. A speaker's voice could be heard on both hillsides. Likewise, the shouts of a crowd on Gerizim could be heard on Ebal and vice versa. So it's interesting, the place that this takes, we see this taking place, and it actually takes place in Joshua chapter 8. But if you look at this, at this scene, if you can imagine these pretty rounded mountain tops, a lot of people could fit upon each mountain. And uh, just interesting how God used that as a place for him to further reinforce and establish his law in the minds and the hearts of his people as they verbally go through this exercise and it's further implanted on their minds what God's law is. All right, let's get into chapter 28. Chapter 28 is a very large chapter, but uh, we're going to try to break it down as fast as we can here. Deuteronomy 28, beginning we see the blessings of the law, blessings of the people. It shall come to pass, verse 1, that thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe, to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. And all, and all these blessings shall come upon thee and overtake thee if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, blessed shalt thou be in the field, Blessed shall thou be in the, the fruit of thy body, the fruit of the ground, and the fruit of thy beast, and the increase of thy cattle, and the young of thy flock. Blessed shall thou be in thy basket, thy kneading trough. When thou comest in and when you go out, you will be blessed. And I want to highlight beginning here in this first paragraph we see already they will be blessed in three distinct areas, three large areas. First of all, their family, that is the fruit of the body. In the fields, and that would be the fruit of the ground, and in their flocks, the fruit of the beasts, the cattle, the flocks, and so forth. These areas they would be blessed in if they keep the commandments of God. 
Now in verse 7, the Lord will cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thee. They shall come out against thee one way, and you shall flee before, and shall flee rather before thee seven ways. So then we're add to that list the foes that they had. So we've got the family, the fields, and your flocks will be blessed, and you will be blessed as well in regard to your foes and your, your enemies. All those enemies of God's people will be smitten, will be run away, and cast out before you. Notice again verse 8, the Lord will command thee blessing upon thee and in thy barns and on all that thou puttest thy hand to do. They will bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The Lord will bless thee a holy people, will establish thee a holy people unto himself as he has sworn unto thee. So we continue again with that idea and all these ideas are, are mixed together until we get to the conclusion of the blessings in verse 14. Thou shalt not turn aside from any of the words which I command you this day to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. Now let's consider, let's pause there for just a minute and consider the blessings that God is going to give them. If you obey, you're going to be blessed in your family, your fields, and your flocks, and in regards to your foes. When we think about the law of Moses, and we're looking at some very, some topics here and subjects that are what we might say fleshly oriented, sometimes I think we have the mistaken notion that the law of Moses is purely a physical covenant. If you think back to chapter 10, verse 16, it said there that we are to circumcise the foreskin of our hearts. Moses told them that, not, not you and I today, but Moses told them, you are to force, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. And we see there that, I want to tie this in with this chapter by saying this, that the law of Moses is not entirely fleshly. Are there spiritual aspects to the law of Moses? There are, aren't there? Admittedly, there are some heavily physical or fleshly related topics and things that are dealt with, but the law of Moses is not entirely fleshly. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16 again, we see aspects and precepts that show us that God is trying to reach their heart. How many times even in this book have we talked about the heart? Over and over we've talked about the heart, haven't we? God is using the law of Moses as a stepping stone, if you will, to reach deep into the heart of man to the spiritual heart of man. He may not get there completely and fully, ultimately, in the sense that he does in the law of Christ. But God is trying to open up their hearts to teach them the law, teach them to obey the law, and do it from the heart. It's not entirely a fleshly law. Many spiritual aspects related to, to the law of Moses. Any comments so far before we move on? All right, let's go on to verse 15. 
a very large shift in the, the narrative here in verse 15. We've looked at the blessings, and now we're going to look at the curses. Verse 15, you might note, all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 68, highlight curses. Highlight things that we might say are warnings to the people. Why does God spend 14 verses on blessings and then the rest of these verses on the cursing? Sometimes the penalty is um, more compelling than the blessing. Sometimes the penalty is very motivating, isn't it? You think about sometimes as a parent to a child, how many times we, when they get to a certain age and they understand, and how many times we have to tell them no, 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 no. And uh, you begin to realize, you know, how many times we have to correct a child by saying no, 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 no. There are certainly definitely times that we need to say yes and, and uh, reinforce the yes, but you begin to see that as a parent, how many times it it's required that you have to say no and, and uh, watch out for this, warn them of this, and warn them of that, admonish them of this. So maybe that's what we're seeing here. Verse 15, But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee. Now what you will see here is a very... Uh, strict parallel to the first few verses that we saw. These exact same areas. Verse 16. Cursed will you be in the city. Cursed will you be in the field. Cursed will you be in your baskets, your kneading trough. Cursed shall you be the, the fruit of your body, the fruit of thy ground, the increase of thy cattle, and the young of thy flock. Cursed shall thou be when you come in and when you go out. Now, as we looked at verse 15 through 19, those parallel verses 2 through 5, evenly. Verse 20, he begins to talk about things such as uh, your health, uh, sicknesses that would come your way. Verse 22, I will smite thee with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with fiery heat, with a sword, and with blasting, with mildew. And they shall pursue thee until you perish. There's really not a single area of their life that would not be affected by God's curses. Everything they know, their family, their bodies, their field, In a society that is based upon agriculture, their flocks would be diseased. They couldn't grow anything. And as we just quickly look into Israel's history, did they always attribute that to God's decision to curse them? Many times they didn't realize it, did they? Until the prophets told them and highlighted that. Did you ever wonder why you, your crops are not producing? And God would say through the prophets, because of your sin and your idolatry. That's why he would give them this curse, these curses. And that's why Deuteronomy is to be 
read and studied and heeded and, and read again and studied and heeded again over and over again throughout the ages. Now verse 25, the Lord will cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. And here we see again the idea of their foes, their enemies. The tables are turned here. You shall go out one way against them, and you will flee seven ways before them, and thou shalt be tossed to and fro among all the kingdoms of the earth. And notice in verse 26, thy dead body will be food for who? For what? You know, in, in the beginning, God created man to be in dominion over all the earth, didn't he? And here we see those tables have turned because of sin. Your dead body will be food for the birds and the beasts of the field. Notice in verse 30. Anything they try and everything they try, their curses would not only affect the family, the fields, and the flocks, and their their enemies would be turned against them. Their enemies would now be successful against them. Not only affect these areas, but verse 20, or verse 30 rather, begins to highlight some others, areas that we will call other consequences that are affected by their disobedience. Verse 30, you will betroth a wife, and another man will lie with her. You'll build a house, verse 30, and another shall dwell in it. Thou shalt plant a vineyard, verse 30, and another will eat the fruit of it. Your ox will be slain before your eyes, and you will not be able to use it. Verse 32, your sons and your daughters will be given to another people. Verse 33, the fruit of thy ground and all thy labors shall a nation which thou knowest not eat up. That which you planted, spent so much time on, another enemy nation will come in and enjoy the fruit of it. Incidentally, who was it that enjoyed the fruit of Canaan? If we look in the book of Joshua and Judges, who was it that was able to go into the land of Canaan and enjoy the fruit that somebody else planted? The Israelites did, didn't they? And now, because of sin, once again, God is prophesying that there will be a time when another nation will come against you and enjoy the fruit that you planted. Verse 36, the Lord will bring thee and thy king whom thou shalt set up over or set over thee unto a nation that thou hast not known. Thou nor thy fathers and there shalt thou serve what? What will you serve there in that foreign nation? Other gods, idols. If you go on down to verse 48, or rather verse 47, because you did not serve the Lord thy God with joyfulness and gladness of heart by reason of the abundance of all these things, therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies that the Lord shall send against thee in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in want of all things. So contrast verse 48 with verse 36. You'll go into a foreign land in verse 36, and serve other gods. Verse 48 says you'll go into another land and serve your enemies as well. Now how bad is it going to get in verse 52 
how bad or how severe are these curses going to become? Verse 52, they shall besiege thee in all thy gates unto the the high and fortified walls come down wherein thou trust. Throughout all the land they shall besiege thee in all thy gates throughout all thy land which the Lord thy God hath given thee. And thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body. Verse 52. Sad. Very, very sad picture. But God is prophesying of a day and time when that would happen. And it actually happened, if you want to make a note for further study, 2 Kings chapter 6. When the city was besieged, people were brought to the level of cannibalism. Does that not show you the picture of how ugly sin is? Does that not show us how ugly sin can be when we don't obey what God has given us, the laws and the words that God has given? Verse 54, the man that is tender and delicate among you, his eye will be evil toward his brother. And we picture some other things in verse 56 and 57 that are very delicate topics, we'll say. Awful picture of what sin does. Of what it can bring a nation to literal ruins and desolation if they don't heed what God has given them. Now in verse 62, as we proceed, if you will not observe to do all these words, in verse 62, you shall become few in number. Think about the promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. You will be a multitude of people. You will be counted as the stars of heaven for multitude. And now he says here in verse 62, you shall be left few in number. And as we look at they left, as they left Canaan, how few there were. Maybe there were two million when they came in. Maybe 50,000 when they left. Very pitiful. Verse 62, you shall be left few in number, whereas you were as the stars of heaven for multitude, because thou did not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. And verse 63 highlights, you will be destroyed, you shall be plucked off from the land. Not only will you become few in number, but you will be removed from that land that God promised you because of sin. Now, verse 65, verse verse 65, among these nations shalt thou find no ease, and there shall be no rest for the sole of thy foot. But the Lord will give thee a trembling heart and failing of eyes and pining of soul. The Lord will give thee these things, and they're not good things. Pining of heart, trembling of soul. You long for the evening. When it's day, you long for the evening. And sometimes when it's evening, you long for the day, he says. He goes on to say, you're restless. You're living in fear. Even in that foreign land. 
And the Lord will bring you again, verse 68, with ships by the way thereof. And I, as I said unto thee, thou shalt see it no more again. At one time, he said, when you left Egypt, you'll see it no more. But now he's prophesying of a time when you shall go and you will sell yourselves to your enemies for bondmen, for bondwomen, and for what price? The last part of verse 68. Put yourself up on the auction block and who's willing to buy? Nobody. Sad, sad, sad condition. Moses is prophesying of the condition that they will be in when they forget God, when they fear other nations and they fear other men rather than God, when they don't hearken unto His commandments to do them, to teach their children to do them, to teach their children to teach their children to do them, and so on, and so on, and so on. Any thoughts on chapter 28? This, in a sense, the way I look at it, it's either a living blessing that overflows with abundance that will be offered to those that, the remnant that returns, mm -hmm. the ones that are faithful, but the ones that are, that will ultimately die, yeah. they'll be reduced, the number will, but it will be a slow, painful destruction. Mm -hmm. At, and like you said earlier, there's a spiritual context of that. Those that are faithful will live abundantly, eternally. Those that are not will live in destruction eternally. You feel it. It'll. You're living through it, like all of these things and the curses have described. Some of the destruction and uh, the decline actually began as early as the Book of Judges, when Moses, or whether Joshua dies, the people, the next generation goes off into sin, and they begin to see some of these things. And as you said, it's a long, gradual process that takes place. Yes. You know, uh, we're living under a cursed situation today. You ask about curses. Uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the ground, and we're having to dig for our own living today. And that curse is not going to be removed until Revelation. The prophecy of Revelation at the end time, it's, it states in uh, 22 and verse 3, and there shall no longer be any curse. You know, God's always told us even today exactly what he expects and what he expects of us to do. He's always been fair about that. We're the ones that don't do it. Exactly. Very good. Any other thoughts? Chapter hey, Brian, 28. Brian, yes. um, just uh, as we were going through Deuteronomy 28, I couldn't help but also think, especially the curses, I couldn't help but think about Proverbs 14.34. Righteousness exalted the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And here are the reproaches of an evil nation uh, outlined in, uh, here in Deuteronomy 28. 
and you can apply it in two ways. One, physical. Even today, an ungodly nation will eventually be judged by God. And then even a spiritual people, i.e. the church, if we don't, and this sort of touches on what Kenny was saying, if we are unrighteous as a people or individual, we will also bear uh, those curses, bear consequences. Mm -hmm. Very good. The more we read the Old Testament and the Deuteronomy, the more like our laws that we live under, they're alike and very similar. Yes. The uh, the book of, or the chapter rather, of 28. We looked at chapter 27. Chapter 27 was looking into the near future. Chapter 28, along with your comment, is looking into the distant future. This is going to cover about 800 years of time, of history, before they go into their captivity. Uh, so they're looking at a long period of time before all these things come about and take place. And by the way, in chapter uh, 29, we, we go back and we look at the present, the here and now, the today, uh, for in their context. All right, let's go on to chapter 29. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab besides the covenant which he made with them. I think he's highlighting a, a distinction there. Uh, the covenant which he made in, in Horeb and then that which he made in, at Moab. Uh, the one in Moab renews the covenant in Mount Sinai. And uh, I think that's what he's explaining here. Verse 2, Moses called unto all Israel, said unto them, Ye have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, unto Pharaoh and unto all his servants and unto all his land. The great trials which your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders. The Lord has not given you a heart to know and eyes to see and ears to hear. He's not given you that and maybe forced you with that ability you had to come to that realization on your own. I have led you these 40 years. Notice what he said in verse 5. Your clothes did not wax old upon you. Your shoe is not waxed old upon your foot. You were blessed, very blessed. And as we look at uh, verse 1 through 9, I think he's highlighting here that the covenant that he mentions in verse 1 is backed up by the power of God. God says, here is the covenant. If you recall in the past, look at the power that I had in providing for your needs. And you came, when you came out of Egypt, verse 2, when you went into the wilderness and had everything provided for you in a wilderness where no man could live, God provided for your needs there. So God's highlighting his power to them. All, this covenant and this oath which you are to enter in today is backed by my power. A lot of, it gives it a lot of credence, doesn't it? Now verse 10, you stand this day, all of you before the Lord your God, your heads, your tribes, your, of your tribes, your elders, your officers, all of you. Verse 12, that you may enter into the covenant of the Lord thy God and into his oath which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day, the covenant and the oath. So verse 10 through 
about verse 14, we're entering into the covenant with the oath. I want to uh, consider, let's camp out here just a minute and consider the covenant and the oath. And even for that matter, the words, the covenant, if we equate the idea of a covenant with words of God, and then we talk about the words and the power that we saw in verse 2 through 9, and we make a parallel here of the covenant and the oath in verse 12. A covenant here is similar to what we see in Genesis 22. God confirmed with an oath his covenant to Abraham. He swore by himself since he could swear by none greater. He was giving the oath to the covenant with Abraham. He was further reinforcing that by giving an oath. And that's what God expects the people to do in verse 12 is to echo that thought by giving your oath of allegiance to the covenant. Now we consider for just a minute the, and if you might notice Hebrews chapter 6 verse 17 talks about the promise and the oath. Two different things. God gave the promise and the oath. And he's referred to in that chapter the fact that God swore by himself. He could swear by none greater. So he confirmed the promises of the covenant with an oath uh, to further establish that. And again, he expects his people to do the same here. Verse 13, that he may establish thee this day unto himself for a people, that he may be unto thee a God as he swear unto thee, as he swear unto Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Verse 15 mentions that he is not making the law or is making that law with uh, him that is not here with us this day, but with him, verse 15, that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us. And I think he's alluding to future generations that would come along in verse 15 and 16. Future generations of theirs that would need to listen to the laws and heed the words of Moses. Those that are not here. In verse 18, he highlights the individual. Even though this is a, a land or a nation of Israel, it doesn't exclude the individual from being accountable to God. Verse 18, lest there should be among you a man, a woman, any person, a family or tribe whose heart turns away from the Lord thy God to serve the gods of these nations, these nations that you're going to see in Canaan. And he even includes in verse 19 those that would perhaps go through the motions, go through the law, say these words at Mount Ebal and Garrison, and say these words and recite these words, but not really say it from the heart. Verse 19, it comes to pass when he hears the words of this curse, that this individual blesses himself and his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. I'm going to have peace. I'm okay. I'm stubborn in heart, but uh, I'm going to get away with it. It's the idea. I'm going to be able to get away with it. That's where his heart is. Walks in the stubbornness of his heart. Now, as all these things come to pass, and verse 22 says, The generation to come, your children to rise up after you, and a foreigner shall come and take you, pluck you up out of the land. Verse 24, people stand by, nations stand by, and they see the smoke arising from this great city, what, what used to be a great city. 
These foreign nations look and they see the smoke rising and what do they proclaim in astonishment in verse 24? What do they say? Why did God do this? And what is the answer to that? They served other gods, disobeyed, and he highlights it here in verse 26, that they went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods that they knew not and that he had not given them idolatry. And as we look over their history, over the next 800 years or so, the sin that became, the sin that destroyed them was idolatry. In verse 29, he says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong unto us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God's saying that I've manifested to you all the words. Anything that is secret remains secret, and you can rest assured that it is not necessary for you to know to be pleasing to God. Same thing applies for us today, doesn't it? Those secret things belong to God. What He has revealed is what we need to be concerned about. And after all, isn't there enough that He's revealed to keep us quite busy? There He is, isn't it? Any parting thoughts as we close uh, that chapter? All right. Appreciate your thoughts and your kind attention.